Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm very excited to welcome Tara Isabella Burton here to the podcast. Literally, my favorite novel in recent years is Social Creature. And so excited. I'm getting a little just, you know, uh, hot under under the shirt here, just having you on. Very excited to have uh, such a, a great novelist here. But also, I've discovered uh, theologian, journalist, and author most recently of Strange Rights. So putting that scholarship to use in a great new nonfiction book coming out May 19th, uh, which is really interesting because it brings in anthropology, history of religion, sociology, uh, philosophy, and cultural analysis. We, we can find out why Elon Musk is polyamorous in, in this in this book. So <laughs> I'm super excited. I'm super excited to talk about this. I, I didn't know that Audre Lorde coined the term self care. This is amazing to discover. Uh, so many so many really great things in here. And so I'm just ex- excited and eager to dive into it. So so welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be on. <laughs> so you know, the first thing I'd, I'd like to ask you about. Um, because there's so many different ways to go here, is um, maybe the audience who theoretically could could have um, any religious or affiliation or not, but as I discovered, um, are probably most likely within what more than half the country is categorized in, according to your book, uh, something you refer to as remixers. And so maybe mm-hmm. if, if we could we can start off with that. Um, well, what is a remixer in, in, um, in understanding how people orient to, to meaning, purpose, and, and religious affiliation? Sure. So um, the idea of religiously uh, remixing is something that came out or um, I've developed out of the work of um, two scholars at Harvard Divinity School, Casper Turcoila and um, Angie Thurston, who talk about unbundling. And what they mean by that is that um, it's increasingly common for Americans of um, any religious affiliation to kind of pick and choose or mix and match the way you might like your cable package and say, I want a little of this, a little of that, um, a little tarot, a little yoga, but I also want to go to Christmas, um, but I also want to go and you know visit some relatives for Passover. And um, what I refer to in the book as the, as the remixed or are the people who who don't fit neatly into one religious category. Um, so often when people talk about quote unquote secularism or the decline of organized religion in America, they're looking at something called the rise of the religious nuns, the N-O-N-E nuns. Um, that's about 23% of the population, give or take, and about 36% of millennials born after 1985. Um, but I argue this doesn't tell the whole story. Um, about 72% of the religious nuns say they believe in some kind of higher power. Actually, 20% of them, give or take, uh, say they believe in the God of the Judeo-Christian tradition. So already you've got something interesting going on here. That these people aren't identifying as atheists or even agnostic. They're just not part of a tradition. Separately, you have people who do identify as Christian or as Jewish or as a member of um, an organized religious tradition, but whose uh, stated beliefs or practices um, are um, contain elements or or faith tenets that are either orthogonal to or even contradictory. Um, to the tenets of their own faith. So, for example, uh, around, I want to say it's 20% of people who identify as Christians say they believe in reincarnation, which um, sort of no Orthodox Christian uh, theologian would say is in keeping with the tenets of Christianity. And And from that... Even a higher percentage of Christians, you, you write, believe in either reincarnation psychics or objects having a spiritual uh what is it value or energy yeah yeah exactly and i mean i suppose there, there are ways i suppose you could argue that you know astrology is real but you're not supposed to practice it or, or that are sort of less obviously um contradictory in that way but which is why the, um, the reincarnation stats struck me as particularly um meaningful but at the same time um it's also worth saying that uh christians report this Roughly the same as um, any other, with the exception of um, white evangelical, or I think it's evangelical Christians, I don't think that study was broke down by, by um, race, although a lot too, um, evangelical Christians were a lot less remixed in this way, but every other um, religious demographic, including the religious nuns, was similarly like 20% or so on every one of these points the study did, um, psychics, astrology, reincarnation, 
energy in physical objects. Um, and what, what that says to me is that the, even the categories we have are wrong because even if we're talking about the religious nuns or the non-religious or Christians or Jews, what we actually have is a category that no study can quite identify, which are people who are, as I put it in the book, remixing. And that I would argue is something that's increasingly prevalent. And I, sure, there's a spectrum. There's, you know, someone who goes to a yoga class or is really into soul cycle or wellness is not necessarily doing precisely the same thing as someone who's like consciously incorporating like taro and meditation into their tradition while also identifying as Jewish. But I think that um, both ends of that spectrum speak to the fact that our spiritual and moral identities um, and to an extent also the related communal identities are, are increasingly piecemeal, increasingly unbundled that we feel as if um, something that many of the people I spoke to in this book um, would say is, you know, I'm kind of make my own religion or like my religion's just sort of for me. It's not a religion. It's what I feel. And there's a sense that we, that our, um, our moral identities should be to use a word millennials like a bespoke um, in a way that I find fascinating. No. And, and for me, what was particularly interesting about that, uh, because I, I've often thought about um, kind of this this postmodern way in which people almost feel pressured to, to create and construct uh, their own identity and, and their own uh, purpose. And, you know, it's like um, ultimate meaning is, is, is no different than your Starbucks order. It's a way of defining yourself. And so you have to put your own little twist on it that, that distinguishes you from someone else. Um, but But what I didn't think about as much is how that has always kind of been the case for a number of strains of, of people. Like uh, you, you say that, that Jefferson, when he kind of stripped out much of the Bible, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he wrote his own bespoke Bible. And so, so uh, you know, and, and similarly you talk about um, that the fact that the printing press was so, uh, you know, important in leading to the Protestant Re uh, Reformation. So, so like, it seems like, there is always this uh, tendency or this dialectic between the institutional and the intuitive, uh, right? The, su the submissive to authority mm -hmm. and, and the individually self-constructing, self-creating, but the, the way that manifests is contingent on history and technology and such. Absolutely. And I would say that that, that pendulum in particular is a, such a distinctly uh, American tension. And I think it's, you know, um, uh, where we are, um, there's this wonderful book by um, Gilbert Seldes called The Stammers, so The Stammering Century, about the, the sort of religious manias of the 19th century. And, and we're very much living in a version of that now. And there really is not a lot has changed on that front. There's a sense in which, and, and in, in, I'll sort of try and deeply boil down the argument I make in the book, but that sort of the, the American Protestant tradition with the idea is already sort of inheriting from the printing press Protestantism cultural hybrid that's spreading across Europe, that faith is something that is internal. You, you read a book, you take it in. It's about your relationship, your piety, at most that of your, your nuclear family and not that of a, an institution. That ethos combined with the, the separation of church and state that is such a foundational part of American identity does render re religion or render, render faith private in a way that I think lends itself to what I call in the book intuitionalism. And when I say intuitionalism in the book, I'm, I mean, um, strains of religious identity that focus on personal piety, personal emotions, what you're feeling, your relationship with God, um, mystical experiences, as opposed to, you know, the civil religion, the institutionalism is the sort of uh, the opposite or, or the way that I tried to, to set up this dialectic. And that need not be organized religion and, you know, spiritualism. Uh, an example that I'm really interested in is, is the rise of um, various um, evangelical uh, American traditions during the various Great Awakenings, these ideas of... Um, kind of, you know, whether it's the tent revivals of the 19th century or, you know, Billy Graham in the 20th century, that there have been constantly been these emotional, like, those people 
are doing religion wrong because they've just made it this sort of boring Sunday service and with coffee hour, and we feel the real meaning of the spirit deep within us. That narrative has been at the heart of, you know, almost every religious awakening uh, in the United States, both both um, Christian and also um, non-Christian or uh, eclectic. Right. And, and narrative plays a big role, but, but so does, despite it seems to me from, from your work, despite how private and uh, self-created and individualistic the, the meaning making is, it's also social and communal and therefore political in important ways, too. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think the, the two areas in the book that I think for me were most fascinating seeing that juxtaposition were the... Um, the uh, a joke is like witches and vampires, uh, Peter Thiel being the vampire. But um, the way in which imagery of the occult, of witchcraft, and in some cases even of the devil, have become these kind of countercultural, transgressive, um, f- often feminist iconography of what's what's often called the, the resistance left. That there's a sort of magical activism strain where... Um, and it's usually women, um, some some non-binary folks, uh, a, a few a few men as well, but but it's it's um, mostly not a male space. Um, but it's this idea that um, the, the the logic goes something like: eighty-one percent of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. The uh, GOP is the party of um, established Christianity that is so entrenched with um, white supremacy and with patriarchy that all of these things are together. This. This, this monolith that must be broken down. How do we break that down? How do we display our resistance to it while still finding religion, finding something spiritually meaningful uh, to use these tools, these images, whether it's the pentagram, whether it's um, the narrative of Lilith as this kind of like badass punk rock demon as um, one um, Sarah Lyons, I think, she, I think she was writing for Broadly at the time, put it. And so there's a sort of whole, um, there's now a whole publishing industry around them, sort of activist spell books. Um, Sarah Lyons, again, just came out with, um, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of her book, but she just came out with a book that was um, in this great tradition of how um, spells, activism, how to cast a spell that your letter to your congressperson will have an effect on them, how to catch a spell, cast a, how to cast a spell to give you energy when you're going out on a protest. And so activism and magic, and particularly the kind of resistance to Christian imagery as a form of resistance to the Trump administration, have all become so closely intertwined. And then the on the other side, and this is perhaps less straightforward, but I would make the case that the imagery of this kind of Nietzschean atavistic paganism, uh, this like Wagner meets Nietzsche meets Schopenhauer meets like frog Twitter aesthetic um, that you find in the writings of, uh, yes, and Stoicism exactly, that, that you find in the writings of Jordan Peterson. Um, and it's less explicit, you know, that you're not actually sacrificing, you know, God's, uh, sacrificing, you're not actually sacrificing cows to ball or what have you, but there's this obsession with them. Um, biological determinism in this mystic way that, you know, this is what nature wants. This is the old days of gods and heroes where men were primal. And that, too, creates this kind of political association between a a set of images traditionally associated with one kind of cultic practice and a a political identity. And I think you're, you're completely right when you said earlier that it's there's a kind of personal identity element to it. It's not just what do you believe? It's what, what does what, how does what you believe reflect who you are in a way that you can share your identity with the people around you and commune with them because you have marked yourself as a member of one tribe or another? You know, do you, um, cleanse with sage? Do you attend protests? Do you, um, on the other side, do you read Quillette? Are you the sort of person who reads Quillette? And what does that mean about you? It's a, it's a potent form of identity formation because whatever it is that you're doing, insofar as it's connected to your vision of a moral reality, a metaphysical reality, an ethical reality, it's also connecting you to like friends to talk to. And the combination of those two things I think is very potent. Yeah. And also, oh, go ahead, Ryan. Yeah. It seems like there's there's like a, cu- a couple of sort of key um, like clarifications or lessons, you know, that that you're 
you're pointing out here, which, you know, I think have a lot to say to sort of mainstream discourse about religion. Um, you know, as you said, on the one hand, you have like a lot of Christians who believe in just like, you know, sort of quasi pagan or spiritual, you know, woo woo stuff about spirits or goblins or whatever. Um, and then I, you know, I would argue even a lot of mainstream sort of institutional Christianity these days has beliefs that, you know, if you were to take them back to like Thomas Aquinas would be straightforwardly blasphemous, like prosperity mm-hmm. gospel, you know, the idea that God wants you to be rich, you know, does not really survive any kind of a reading of, uh, you know, the gospels. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, you have a lot of, uh, you know, ostensibly non-religious people with these beliefs um that are clearly kind of quasi religious in nature in some way you know astrology or or you know religious sort of behaviors around wellness or uh you know bodybuilding or something um and that i think speaks to what you know religion really is i think a lot of people you know have an idea that it's about a sort of worked out theological intellectual program that you believe it's like god created the world on day X, and then Y happened, and then here's the nature of the Godhead or whatever. But like for yeah. most people, it really isn't about that. It's more about like the sort of the social elements, the community and so on. So can you kind of speak to that and how it's sort of uh, revealed in these kind of new quasi-religious spiritual sort of groupings? Absolutely. So one of the things to sort of what one of the starting points of this conversation is that I, I always try to make clear that there is no one established definition of religion. You know, ask ten scholars of religion, what is a religion? And you you'll get ten answers. You know, it's almost like that that the joke about pornography, like you know it when you see it. Um what counts as a religion is it's it's very difficult to pin down. And certainly like there have been theorists like like Durkheim that see it as a primarily um social phenomenon. It's about your group coming together. It almost doesn't matter what you're um, worshipping or venerating. What matters is the sense of tribal belonging that's um, fostered by that that um, that shared moral universe. Um, at the same time, you have someone like uh, Clifford Geertz who says, you know, religion is it's, it's about it's a system of meanings and, and sort of the way in which the, um, the world around you is given kind of a deeper significance uh, by uh, an overarching structure that gives sense of that. So in my book, I, I uh, cleverly avoid uh, having to decide on a definition of religion by pre- sort of offering up a synthesis and say, okay, we can't. I'm not going to try and define it here, but I will say there are these sort of four elements of religion um, that, to greater or lesser extent, seem to be present in um, in all of these processes. And for me, those are meaning, so um, a sense of uh, why the world is the way it is. Uh, importantly, why bad things happen and the source of badness in the world, uh, theodicy being the technical term there. Um, there's a sense of purpose, which is not just what is the meaning in the abstract, but what do I... Tara have to do, you know, how is my life in dialogue with the meaning of the universe? Then there's community, pretty straightforward. Who are the people around me and how do I interact with them and how are we part of the same moral world? And then there's ritual. Um, What are the actions I can do every day, once a week, um, in my life that are concrete and yet somehow tied in with my sense of purpose which in contact with my community is uh, ties into meaning. And I think any definition of religion that um, leaves behind one or more of these is, is, in my view, incomplete. And on the one hand, I think you're absolutely right. We shouldn't overlook uh, the fact that so much of religious identity is social. It is about the communities we foster. But I think it's also fair to say, and this is, is something that I try to tease out in the book, that the kind of implicit assumptions that um, underpin our rituals are also things that, you know, visions of the the universe, and they need not be incredibly systematic or even coherent. Um, It's not necessarily like I need a, like, summa theologiae of soul cycle, although that would be super interesting, and I would love to, like, read or write that. Um, um, But rather that, you know, 
if someone's getting really into like wellness culture and the narrative of wellness, you know, okay, maybe they're not thinking too much about like, is there a God? Is there an energy that runs to, through us? But there is an ideology behind it. There's the ideology of like, I need to be my best self and to achieve my, my goals in the universe and to be in harmony with the universe. I need to do these things and, and, and looking good and feeling good and being well in this very, very nebulously defined way is, is actually, um, part of my, my moral duty in the world. And while that may not be something that, like, if I'm, you know, working out six days a week at Soul Cycle, I'm thinking about all the time, that absolutely does shape, I think, um, my approach to the world, my, my approach to other elements of my life. Um, it's what I call in the book the, the cult of best selfism. And I think, um, it's, it's vital to, to sort of, to see these, uh, these new religions, not merely as just communal or just ideological, but points at which those things uh, intersect and really feed off each other. They are not four distinct categories so much as um, kind of uh, four elements in dialogue with one another. Yeah. And I, I, no, no, I was just going to say, I think it is very helpful to, to try to do that um, unmasking of those um, implicit, if not explicit, um, narratives, assumptions, pictures of, of the world, uh, I think uh, Ryan would probably agree with me that Aristotle probably had it right, that, that every action aims at some good. And to the mm -hmm. extent that people are acting based in, in, in you know, in accordance with, with some um, beliefs that maybe they're not fully uh, aware of, but they're, they're part of a tribe or a community informing them, or to the extent that they are self-consciously creating it, it, it is, you know, that meaning-making process is aiming at, at, at some good. And so to understand what those are and how they interact with each other, I think can be very helpful, um, especially in, in, the, in this time where more and more we're seeing kind of the consequences of, of people's beliefs and actions and how interconnected we all are. Yeah. Yeah. More I, of a, that was more of a statement than a question really. Um, <laughs> no, no, I've got, I've got one, you know, reading your book, I, I was, I was def I was struck by, you know, being online journalist, you know, and, sort of just like looking around sort of the swamps of the the far right um and you know like the the even just the mainstream republican party i i think it's fair to say there is a real uh epidemic of crackpot bullshit uh that that is that is sort of taken <laughs> on you know a a kind of you know quasi religious quasi you know mystical sort of uh, belief system in the sense that you're talking about here in terms of, you know, ideology, community, and so on, um, and, and, and morality. Uh, and I, w I wonder, you know, it seems like this, this is a thing that, that certainly predates the current moment, but it, it's, it seems on my totally uninformed wild ass guess that it's gotten worse and worse over the last, say, 30, 40 years, maybe. Um, and, you know, you look at sort of capitalism and the victory mm -hmm. of kind of neoliberalism and, uh, the, the, the vacating of, uh, you know, traditional as, as sort of like the most prominent type of Christianity became a sort of adjunct of Republican that is capitalist mm -hmm. politics. Um, do you think that that sort of vacancy at the at the heart like the the fact that capitalism gives you no really serious moral you know what i mean you would say it's a straightforwardly immoral uh belief system to, to just like oh it's all about profit and ripping other people off and being yeah. deliberately antisocial. um do you think that that uh lack of any sort of moral core at the center of uh, American political economy is driving people that you know sort of uh, unwittingly through desperation into the into the arms of this kind of I mean that this stuff you're talking about as well as the like cure COVID by drinking colloidal silver and whatnot. Mm. Um, so my answer is basically yes, um, but I would frame it slightly differently. So which is to say, so. Um, the, we're seeing when we talk about decline of, of Christianity or we talk about the kind of rise of evangelicalism, we're also talking about the decline of mainline Protestant Christianity, which until like the, the 60s really was the, um, the pillar of a kind of s 
staid civic life. And it was it was sort of progressive, but not too progressive, you might say. It was the sort of bourgeois bulwark that um, in perhaps one might say accommodating capitalism in a different, just a less flashy way, um, ultimately lost a lot of its members. I mean, I think if uh, mainline Protestant denominations, that includes things like um, my own church, the Episcopal Church, but also um, Lutherans, um, if they keep declining at their current rate, they'll be uh, completely wiped out within 25 years. Um, so at the same time that this was happening, the um, the evangelical wing of Christianity became more and more powerful, um, allied with, um, starting in 1979, with the moral majority under Jerry Falwell, with the Republican Party, and did indeed kind of wed itself to the to Republican Party politics. But I think to talk of, to speak of um, capitalism, I think is a, uh, the problems of liberalism or, and capitalism and even the problems of capitalism as a religion, I think are, uh, are broader than just um, a critique of the Republican Party. I think the way that I would frame it is that the, um, perhaps the, the, the cult of liberalism we find in America with our, obsession with um, with autonomy with human freedom with um, a kind of public square that is is neutral and in some sense unenchanted um I, I would personally call it immoral um, as a scholar or at least I would personally call capitalism immoral but as a scholar the way that I would um, frame that is say that you know capitalism does have a morality it has an ideology it has a vision of the good one I personally uh, find abhorrent, but the, I think the sense of profound failure that many people are feeling, and I think this is certainly true on the left, I think it's also to an extent true on the right, that this kind of, uh, the spiritual vacuousness of a certain conception of um, liberal autonomy and uh, faith in capitalism has led to all of these splinter groups that are, and you know, many of which do engage with uh, consumer capitalism in their own ways. I mean, we're all, you know, people are buying their tarot cards. They're not hand-making them. They're buying them from Amazon. But um, I, 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 would, I would see the proliferation of all of these new religions as a reaction to simultaneously the failures of multiple institutions, governmental, ecclesiastical, from the Catholic sex abuse scandals to the moral bankruptcy of the GOP um, to just a, a general um, distrust of the media. Um, I would also motion that the institutional, um, let's say, loss of public trust happened around the same time as a kind of increasing awareness that neoliberalism did not provide a robust sense of meaning or moral core and that that hunger for that is legitimate. No, no. And, and is it, it strikes me that there, it's, it's doubly um, not just uh, vacuous, but um, disillusioning and disenchanting and, and empty for those that pursue uh, those capitalist ends to, to which uh, most people are, are shaped and pushed into pursuing, because not only is it so that the, there's the broader problem uh, for those of us that, that think there is transcendent meaning and a transcendent source of meaning, it, it is already a problem to try to be the ground of your own meaning. And, and there is probably something I would say uh, that is problematic about trying to be just individually the ground of your own meaning and purpose. Yeah, absolutely. But even even if that were a source of of meaning and purpose that could fulfill you to do it in capitalism where your desires are shaped by others and the products are li literally marketed mm -hmm. to you and given to you you're all you're not even hobbesian and just pursuing whatever your desires are you're just pursuing whatever desires are sold to you and packaged to you and that you're pushed to do right so so like yeah. you can't even have true license let alone liberty tied to a good <laughs> that's that's absolutely right. I mean, what, what I find so striking is the way in which um, corporations have kind of muscled in on this hunger. Um, the example I'd love to give is in 1989, um, the razor company uh, Gillette, um, their Super Bowl ad was the best a man can get. 
And it was all about, you know, be sexy and shave with this razor and you're going to get all the hot girls. And then in, in 2019, I think it was, uh, or perhaps a couple of years earlier, maybe it was 2018, it was um, the best a man can be. And it was a peg to, it must have been 2018, February, because it was right after Me Too. And it was this very, like, be the best a man can be, get rid of toxic masculinity. And... I, it, there was something to my mind so craven about that of just, you know, oh, the kids these days, they want the, they want the wokeness. We're gonna, we're gonna give it to them. And I suppose that there's a more charitable reading of that. But I think it's really telling that there's, that, that corporations have cottoned on to the fact that, you know, the way in which we express our moral values is by spending money or not spending money. I mean, what do you do when you, you know, don't like, um, uh, what an author says, you boycott them, you stop reading your work, you know, quote-unquote cancel culture is a lot about where, you know, I will buy this, I will not buy this, I will not buy, buy things from this company in a way that, you know, our moral identities are so tied into what we consume. And it's, um, it's, it's only becoming kind of in the era of personal branding and social media where companies are sort of creating these, you know, cute little social media identities and you know, Mr. Peanut has a tragic death or what have you, um, as, as happened, that, that was actually did happen in the Super Bowl. They killed off Mr. Peanut. That, um, what, what companies are trying to sell to you is, is God, is, is divinity, is transcendence. They're not trying to sell sex anymore. They're not trying to sell glamour or wealth. Um, my, I remember, uh, Elizabeth Arden's Red Door Salon, which used to be, you know, the, what, among the most, elegant salon chain, spa chains in, in, in the country and was associated with this kind of like mid-century American madman style glamour, they rebranded recently to become Mind, a self-care journey. Uh, it's the same salon. They did a great job. They did my hair. It was actually very, very nice. But, you know, that's what they're, that's what they needed to, to, to rebrand in order to appeal to the kids these days. Yeah, Ryan, do you remember we watched uh, those commercials, those Super Bowl commercials together, the, the Mr. Peanut one and also the, yeah. uh, the, the Gillette one? Yeah. So if, if, if they can't commodify making yourself sexually alluring, they can commodify making you a feminist. So just one click in the button and you can be a feminist. Yeah, the Mr. Peanut uh, uh, branding in general has always been a little bit disturbing a sort of uh, anthropomorphic peanut with a top hat and a monocle who sells his own brethren to be, you know, packaged in <laughs> bottles like some, you know, cattle car and, and sold on supermarket shelves. You know, it's it's really dark when you think about it. Ah, uh, capitalism. <laughs> Maybe it was a good thing that he he got, uh, you know, uh, put in the ground. He was assassinated by Antifa. That's canon now. Um, <laughs> speaking of canon, by the way, one of, one of the more interesting parts of your book, you you talk about uh, fandom culture as a kind of religious experience. Um, can can you go into that a little bit? I thought that was very interesting. Sure. So, I mean, I think a, a lot of scholars have already worked on this with people like Chris Partridge that um, the fan culture has often long been this kind of religious experience insofar as, you know, you're, you're all fans of something, you're all, you know, screaming together, yay, Justin Bieber or Joe Jonas or, or what have you. And there is that sense of, of community around that. But the, the thing that I find even more, um, fascinating to me is the way in which, um, internet fan culture specifically paved the way for the kind of, um, bespoke internet culture that we now have um, much more broadly in which we are all kind of simultaneously consumers, but also content creators. Um, and I, I actually, um, in, in the book, I make this case and I, I, it sounds weird, so bear with me, but that the, um, the development of the Harry Potter fandom, which basically tracked exactly with the um, proliferation of the internet, of, of the internet in private homes. So like, if you look at like, Every time a new book was released, it tracked with like a major, you know, 500 fold increase in the number of households with, with, with internet, um, kind of paved the way for a very particular kind of culture. And that's that if you were um, a culture that now, um, you know, kind of defines, you know, anyone under, let's say 40, um, you grew up, you read this book, fine. 
but you you then realize you can you can go and you can find other people who are like minded and not just the sort of people who were really into Star Trek or Star Wars and going to cons and conventions in the 70s or 80s. But now anyone, if you were doing you know, a kid with a an internet connection, can start finding these these communities, the cult of fan fiction, the idea that if you don't like a story, you can just rewrite it or change it or critique it. That the the powers that be or word of God to use some pop, popular uh, fandom expressions for uh, the original creators um, are not necessarily the final word on the matter. That proliferated into the kind of uh, media coverage and pop culture analysis that you find in like television sites, uh, sites like television without pity or other media analysis, which then got kind of those graduates ended up working for like New York magazines, the cut and um, vulture and other much more um, sort of national level, you might say, or, or formal outlets. And what you really saw is this, this idea that was once kind of, specific to like narrow fans writing fan fiction on uh, either private blogs or or smaller sites is suddenly now fan culture and consumer culture and consumer of pop culture culture, which really means the culture of all of us who engage in media in the 21st century. Um, Something you, you, you identify not just as like a show you like, but your particular you know, faction within the show. Do you ship these characters? Do you ship those characters? Did uh, the ending of, of the series, uh, you know, did Game of Thrones live up to your standards or your expectations? Um, have you already called the ending because you've you know worked out all of the clues? All of these these senses in which media and texts are not something for you to passively consume but something for you to recreate to have ownership in that you almost feel and I, I don't use the word pejoratively but like entitled to have a view on participate in in the product of I think that cultural shift happening as it did around um, millennials and younger paved the way for an approach to texts stories, um, ideas, and yes, religious texts that was kind of predicated on the notion that I am not just a passive consumer. I am not just someone who's going to read the book at the uh, start at the beginning and end at the end and, and take what I'm given. I, I want to have a role in this. I want creative agency. And, and so I do think that, that, you know, as, all those people in 1996 saying, like, Harry Potter is going to be the end of Christianity. Like, they were kind of right. They just weren't right in the way they expected. No, it's interesting to me that, that like, you know, this, this idea that these cultural offshoots of capitalist consumer culture are, are freeing and liberating and supporting autonomy and, and, and so forth is uh, so seductive because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it goes against the institutions, uh, the various church institutions where, you know, the rules were set as against you. You followed them to be part of the community. And, and that was how you supported those institutional structures and, and, and the powers that be. But capitalism is so brilliant because it can have itself perpetuated and supported by giving you the illusion that you are deciding things when, in, in fact, it just says, sure, you decide, you decide how to use this consumer product, this book that, that's being mm-hmm. sold to you, and you could write your own fan fiction, but still, you're perpetuating the revenue that we need, so I don't really care. And, and you think you're being anti-establishment, anti-institutional, and, and really autonomous, operating outside of a structure, when, in fact, you're really just kind of a pawn in the broader game. Kind of brilliant, really. Yeah. Yeah. So no, it's, that's certainly unsettling. No, I think it's it's absolutely true that this obsession with um, following your desires and following your heart and listen and 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 this is often true in in and I, I have a chapter about um sort of the the polyamorous sexual revolution and the idea of of um you know you can pick your own relationship styles whatever you want whatever you desire whatever turns you on is is something that you should explore because the only reason you you would not explore that is because the big bad rule man is repressing you and there's this narrative uh, that you know I spoke earlier about, you know, the source of badness in the world in each metaphysical system. I think in the intuitional system, it's the man. 
And I, and I, you know, I, I'm being serious here. I mean, the, you know, institutions, society, anyone who would restrict your autonomy is, 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 is bad and wrong and only by accessing your purest inward self can you be free. But as you say, that, that, that there's no acknowledgement there that any of our desires, our wants are fashioned by society. It's a, it's a very false vision of, of, of autonomy once again that says, well, like the only reason you're not free is because your actions are constricted and maybe you have some like repression going on. There's no sense that someone might be unfree because, um, well, because their wills or desires are complicated or contradictory or because their will and desire have been shaped by forces out of their control or by other people. And so there is that, that just astonishing, um, faith and in, indeed a religious faith in, in, um, in the individual that I think is at the core of, I mean, so much of American religious life, but particularly these post, post capitalism, uh, capitalism adjacent traditions. And it's, it's complicated because some of these people are avatars for oppression. And, and like, it's not to, you know, I'm not going to necessarily hex Donald Trump and Brett Kavanaugh, although that go for it, you know, <laughs> if that works, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but like, they are actual symbols of oppression and repression. Absolutely. Yeah. But like, what I think is interesting is this is really revealing to me as to why, say, Alyssa Milano is not speaking out against Joe Biden and, and the, the very credible rape allegations that, that uh, have been made against him, because that doesn't fit the narrative, right, of certain mm. centrist liberal Democrats um, who can't put him as one of the avatars like they can Trump and Kavanaugh in the same way, which, which shows a little bit, to me at least, uh, about how some of these narratives and some of these identity markers are, are somewhat divorced from kind of like the ontological uh, commitments that they purport to be about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think so, something I didn't have the opportunity to write about in, in the book, but I think bears saying is that, you know, the, the alternative to, it, it's not that we have on the one hand, like, magical activism, resistance witches, and then we have, like, real, true Christianity. On the other hand, I mean, the white evangelical GOP alliance is every bit as much as a, a, of a capitalist death cult as um, Gillette trying to sell, uh, you know, capitalize on feminism to sell razors. They're and I, you mentioned earlier the the prosperity gospel. About forty percent of uh, evangelical Protestants go to churches uh, where this is taught. Uh, for those of you who don't know, um, the prosperity gospel is a quintessentially American tradition uh, that basically says uh, if you have fa- enough faith, if you often tithe enough, uh, God will make you wealthy. It's is started is particularly popular in um, Pentecostal churches and has now become quite widespread. It's also rooted in an American tradition called New Thought, which we didn't get to, but that's all right. Um, but but this sort of this pro- the you know best selfism prosperity gospel um, kind of belief in material success as proof of divine favor, not super different from uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop or wellness culture. Um, and again, um, but you know, Trump has managed to simultaneously have the like goopy, wellnessy, like, oh, the only reason you're not successful is because you're not like aligned in the right way. I mean, it's worth saying that like Alex Jones and Gwyneth Paltrow sell, um, chemically identical supplements on their respective platforms. Um, they, they, they use the same suppliers, I believe. Um, but, um, the, the sort of, evangelical religion i i christian not only christianity but i certainly wouldn't uh would not uh say it bears any reference to any resemblance to to christianity as i understand it is very much about identity it's about you know it's tied up with the kind of atavism of you know primal masculinity of the past and it's it's tied very much with a, a capitalist faith in material outcomes so i i think that um you know they're all, or almost all of them, are, are these forms of new religions. It's there are there are perhaps not so many, um, though, though of course there are some examples. I'd like to see more of uh, of a religion practiced outside those parameters. And of course, you know, in a 
broken world, I'm not sure it's it's possible that uh that any would be. Certainly. Yeah, less uh less Joel Olstein's the Ken doll of Christianity. Uh, you know, J- Joel Olstein, who in I. You know the recent hurricane, right? In in in, yep. in Texas, uh, had to be shamed into uh, opening the doors of his massive mega church to actually uh, serve his brothers and sisters. Uh, you know, it's just. Um, and he was passing and then, the collection plate around to yes, all the refugees. That's right. He he did indeed. God's yeah. own work, right there. And and right now, I mean, the the tendency among megachurch pastors uh, to encourage worship and and the idea that there are so many, um, and it it does seem to be a particularly evangelical phenomenon. I think certainly, as as far as I'm aware, um, you know, Catholic dioceses have, have shut it all down, um, shut worship down. But this idea that the kind of anti-establishment strain, which is bizarrely now uh, synonymous with accepting a, the current administration, but this idea that, you know, the scientists are wrong, the media is trying to trick you, show up and, and keep going to church, that's not, I mean, it is a religious faith to be sure, but it is it is not, um, the content of that is just a kind of, almost a, a pure destructive impulse to, um, to, I mean, it is, it is, it's, it's sort of intuitionalism combined with, um, an, an absolute contempt for anything that might be seen as a institution. Although I suppose there, what I find so fascinating is that um, it, it's managed to be simultaneously anti-institutional and authoritarian um, in in the way in which sort of that whatever Trump is able to represent in his person and and the the values that he conveys of a kind of atavistic virile strength. Oh, I. Can't believe I just said those words. Um, but that, that, that is the narrative that, that he is so powerfully conveying that, you know, he is, he is, you know, the Chad God Emperor laughing at all those silly eggheads. And that's also why the mega churches have to stay open. And it's not a, a coherent theology, but it's, it's sort of a, it's a, it's a psychological, you know, it, we, we did an episode on Adorno and the authoritative personality. I mean, it's no it's no coincidence that that such a, a bully, such an impotent coward like Trump is the, the symbol for, for courage and strength and virility for so many incels and other people, I think, because, it, it, you know, the cult of personality, the authoritative personality personality replaces institutions and norms and, and, and things that you would have to, to navigate uh, otherwise. And I, it's not even starting with Trump, though. I mean, you know, Rick Warren, the Purpose Driven Life in his mega church, right? He mm-hmm. famously uh, was able to host a debate between Obama and Romney, right? Because he was so popular that, that like, he was the, the avatar, the, the figure uh, that would, would help uh, the country decide. Um, so, so, you know, there, there's this weird thing you're, you're, you're discussing so many interesting contradictions, um, that, you know, it's all about me and my choices. Okay. These structures are telling me what to choose. It's all about me and autonomy. Oh, these leaders I should submit to. And that's my personality. That's my identity is, is like submission to this, this, you know, authoritarian. And of course the, the other sort of element of Trump is as you know, say what you will about him. He, he is certainly the, the patron saint of intuitionalism. He, he is, a, if anyone, uh, and perhaps the only person uh, in, in certainly my orbit of public life who, who seems to act entirely according to his own impulse and his own will and his, his own intuitions, uh, regardless of anything else. Don't forget Bush, President Bush. I mean, Colbert famously, famously roasted him for saying, you know, lots of people like to decide with their head. I go with my gut, you know, like. It, like- yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah, the, there is certainly I mean, a longstanding uh, American... <laughs> But also uh, evangelical, though, I think, or or at least white <laughs> Protestant like lineage there. Yeah. 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 Um. Okay. Yeah. Just to barge in here. Um. The, this this whole discussion here it it reminds me. Um. I've been reading a lot of New Deal history during my quarantine hours, and um, one thing that really jumps out, you know, is is during the Depression compared to now. Uh, is the incredible docility of the American people and um, also the just the fecklessness of both parties in terms of trying to 
at least grapple with the problems that are that are like tearing the country apart. You know, it's like we we have Republicans now trying to save the rich, and Democrats are uh, on recess for the next month. Um, and when I was <laughs> reading the book, it, it it struck me as like, well, back then, you know, it it was a dramatically much more religious uh, country. But I think it's fair to say that the content of that religion was much more collectivist. Uh, the and and social pro social, you know, in a sort of tra- like traditional, like we are all in this together type of sense. Then, um, both both the you know the mainstream type of religious organizations that exist now, which are much less influential, anyways. Um, and and I wonder, you know, um, you if you think there's any 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 way like like you see any sort of developing movements that that are trying to uh, establish a new sort of religious or quasi-religious tradition to sort of like break out of this, you know, sort of capitalist hegemonic framework that it's all about me and my choices and my individuality and so on, and sort of rediscover a kind of public space, public goods, recognition of interdependence and so on um, that, that I think is kind of just like brutally necessary to be able to like put this shambling scrap heap of a country back together. Yeah. I mean, I do think that there are spaces for that. Um, my, maybe my personal response to that one was to become a Christian. So, um, I, I don't have a, a new religion there, but, um, I, I, I'm being flippant, but I will say that just anecdotally and obviously like I, the, the, the world in which I, I live and move um, is, is sort of weighted to, to have a lot more of, of these kind of people. But I, I've known so many people who, who actually sought out um, certain forms of um, traditional organized religion precisely because of that. They, who, who would say something like they wanted tradition, they wanted um, literature, you know, whether it was initially uh, the appeal of the aesthetic element at first of, of you know, liturgy and music or it was the sense of wanting, um, you know, firm doctrine or firm text, um, or it was, you know, the sense of wanting to get outside themselves um, and and acknowledge the kind of interdependence that uh, we have on one another. Um, I, I think that it may well be the case that, you know, the punk thing to do for a certain generation of, of youths disaffected by liberalism is to be like, fine, you know, Okay, mom, I'll just go to church then. Um, and it's, I, I, I'm kind of joking, but I, I, I have seen it. It's like how hipsters reject craft beer and they go to like Coors Light because like that's the cool thing to do is to go back to the thing that like everyone used to drink. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm being a little jokey about it, of course, but I do think, and you know, I, I'm not sure if the numbers will bear this out, but I could say only that, um, that I think, and, and you know, that the, the sort of small 20 person, you know, churches that are, you know, often, I mean, I've, I've seen this happen with, with people becoming Catholic. I've seen this with people um, becoming Episcopalian, but that, that these people are not necessarily drawn to like evangelical mega churches that are supporting Trump. Often the, the, pe- the churches that I'm, where I'm seeing this happen are more um, politically progressive, politically aware, um, and are, and, and, and I have actually, well, I've seen this with both, um, with people across the political spectrum, but there, there is a sense in which, um, consciously people I think are, are looking for iterations of, of traditional faith that as, as much as is possible under capitalism are set themselves outside the capitalist order that, that make a statement of, of, of values. I had a piece that was supposed to come out in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago and then um, the world changed and it suddenly weird Christianity was not a quite so newsworthy uh, compared to the coronavirus. But so many of the people I interviewed were, said the same thing, which was like, I got so sick of this very particular political discourse, this political binary and this, this sense of, of capitalism and um, and 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 uh, the the culture, the sort of throwaway culture of human lives, and I wanted to 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 go somewhere and and find some somewhere and be among people for who who really believe in in, in the the common good and in, in ontological goodness in a life in which we can care for one another that is not defined by what we buy and sell. So I, I imagine that whether or not that takes the form of one of the um, 
organized religions that is that are uh, now uh, that one of the the sort of sorry let me rephrase that whether or not this takes the form of organized religion I think we will see a move towards perhaps not full on institutionalism because I think institutions perhaps have failed us a bit too much but towards structured community and more formal ways of being together that are about the group and the common good rather than the individual. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the thing that I, th- you know, if you grew up in a uh, evangelical, you know, conservative Christian community and developed a sort of new atheist complex, as I did when I was in high school, um, the thing that, it, that you realize going, going to church these days, like, the 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 content of the beliefs is really a fairly small part of the whole religious like apparatus you know a lot of it is just going to see your friends and then having like a potluck with those those folks or you know uh uh, uh donating rituals. yeah donating some money that you could use on you know assisting the homeless and stuff i mean just like anodyne really inarguably good stuff you know, and, 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 you know, there are a lot of problems with various churches, but, you know, you're talking about your sort of average Protestant, not evangelical, not Catholic. The Catholics got their own serious problems, maybe impossible to stomach, but, you know, that's most of what they do. And it's not about sort of, you know, you, I think for a lot of people, if that's what you're looking for, and you could sort of take or leave the sort of theological claims, there's still a lot there for people, you know? Um, a, a community and a, a, a practice and a, a collective morality about helping each other that uh, you want to, you know, you want to be part of something bigger than yourself. And I think that definitely uh, there's a lot of appeal there. A lot of a lot of people have a, I forget who said it first, but like bed sores of the soul, you know, mm. that that we yeah. there, there's too much, uh, too much individualism, too much. Um, self-reliance and just, you know, to, to just go to a place to meet, uh, meet folks, you know, over and over and, uh, see how their lives are going and, and help them do something is good in and of itself. And, you know, even, even, uh, a source of relief, just that. I, I think that I, I think that's absolutely right. And yet a difficulty of that is that Historically speaking, um, looking again at the um, decline of mainline Protestantism, when church becomes conceived of as like the place you, you don't really have to believe, but it's just like nice to go, that's often um, historically the like, first thing that happens before you start shedding members because the, the cycle goes, well, if I don't have to go here, like why don't I go somewhere that's not early on a Sunday morning when I'm hungover and, you know, why do I have to go at all? And I think so. One of the one of the difficulties is is also recognizing that that sort of how much a belief and a sense that this is not just um, communally good but ontologically real seems to be necessary to keep um, to keep a faith tradition alive. How I much of that do you think is because? It... How much? Sorry to, to cut you off. Uh, how much do you think that's because in at least Protestant versions of Christianity, for example? Um, belief is kind of the point like like you know your personal relationship to god and 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 your private if you will uh beliefs what you take to be true is really the point and so church in, in essence is about kind of uh reaffirming that or helping you do that uh whereas in say catholic or, or eastern orthodox um contexts it's much less about you know uh you know creed is there of course but like participating in the rituals and in the church the you know uh, the ecclesiastic uh the, the, the you know the thing that that maps onto what you're talking about in terms of the desire these days for participation and meaning and and like you know a way of life a way of being that that feels like you are part of it you are contributing to it is something that to me fits more and makes more sense in the context of uh th- those kind of communal yeah. uh, versions of christianity i, I don't know if that so, so maybe the drop off isn't as much there and, and because it's less mm-hmm. oriented to kind of just philosophy translated into theology. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly true. I can, I can think of, you know, I, uh, I used to live in Tbilisi and like so many people who are, you know, deep, I did deeply sort of self-identify as religious in the Georgian Orthodox Church, you know, Georgianness and Orthodoxy are both 
huge parts of that um, that identity, and it's very difficult to disentangle them. Um, I, but I'd also say that um, it's so difficult to, to tease out or to separate belief from practice, and that's something that I think, you know, if you're affirming a creed every, every week in church, and you're participating fully in the life of that church and the life of that church and the way it's structured is governed in part by understandings about metaphysical truth that I suppose, you know, there's this sort of Ignatius of Loyola, like perform the acts of faith and the faith will come. I think it's, 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 well, that might not be sort of strictly true in a linear sense. I think it's, um, it's very hard to tease out what, believe actually mean like what does it mean to believe what does it mean to you know as a as opposed to to affirm and i think that you know even hit there was plenty of saints who had you know dark nights of the soul and did not believe and you know they they still uh, made it to sainthood um and then so i think that um i think that both sort of affirming in a way that isn't i think a church a church cannot not affirm its own tenets. And I think a big, a big mistake is for an institution to be like, oh, well, like, did Jesus come back from the dead? Like, I don't know, shrug emoji. I think regardless of, um, you know, whether, whether someone might be going through a dark night of the soul on that particular day, um, that if an institution dispenses with its reason for existing, if, if, there is no kind of affirmation that this isn't just like a nice fun thing to do, but this is real. This is based on an ontological truth. I think that that it is very difficult to sustain. Right. Right. But I I guess what I'm saying is like, if you think the epistemological approach to truth is like cognitive, like I can rationally figure it out. Right. Like that, that presents problems that I think lead to a decline in the church where it's like, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, there's a mystery. Like, what does it mean to say that the, the body and blood of Christ is in the Eucharist? Like, I can't put that into, I can't explain that to you rationally. I don't know what that means. Like, what does that mean? Like, it's not something that I can say. But that just because you can't say things doesn't mean they aren't real. Um, yeah. and, and so, like, I don't know. It, it's interesting because, you know, I, when Ryan before was talking about crackpot, you know, I, I do think, like, there's no evidence or basis epistemologically for the prosperity gospel and so forth. But, like, this is a, maybe a, a final thing to talk about. Um, how do you, we need to, in guiding people and guiding ourselves, differentiate for like a basis for belief and action. Like, I think there's a big difference between um, why Elon Musk is polyamorous and say like why somebody would take the leap of faith to, to, to be a, a Christian perhaps. And like, even in terms of remixing, like, liberation theology remixes Marxism with Christianity. So like, how is that different? I mean, I think one of the, I, I, I think we've always been remixers and it'd be remiss to, to, to treat remixing as it is explicitly secular phenomenon. I mean, even when we, you know, in, in the earliest days of America, folk magic yeah, among the the sort of self-described Puritans was 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 right. I think that, um, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, so that was itself another kind of uh, forebear of of modern uh, modern American religious culture. So I mean, I think I think that remixing and, and all forms of syncreticism can can be incredibly useful and often kind of be a way to open up sides of a faith, you know, in the case of liberation theology, to, to ask certain questions, to interrogate um, a theology from a different perspective and see what that reveals. All of those things are incredibly fruitful and good. I think that my dubiousness about remixing when it comes to faith, as I understand in contemporary American culture, is the degree to which the remixing is done purely like the governing principle is personal happiness, and I have much more of the of an issue with the governing principle than I have with the method. If it's if it's just what makes you feel good, um, I don't think that's a sustainable mechanism for putting together a metaphysical and ethical worldview. The goop makes me feel good. I love it. 
<laughs> you know, Ryan, you don't know what your good is, man. Okay. That's, that's your problem. You're loving the wrong things. We need to educate you to love the right things. And, and maybe like, hopefully part of our, you know, existential, theological, political meaning making can be figuring out what is in our own good. The, you know, by, by their fruits, you shall know them. What does help each other live a meaningful and fruitful life and see how that seems to not be connected to what the powers that be want us to do who happen to benefit by exploiting our labor Mm -hmm. and selling us products. So I think there's something in that too. Yeah. Um, well, we're probably pretty close to the end here. Uh, but any, any last, uh, uh, comments, Sarah, um, questions you wish we had asked before we let you go. No, no, this is, we had a wonderfully wide-ranging conversation. It was delightful. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Next time, will you tell us why Elon Musk is polyamorous? <laughs> oh, man, I forgot. Next time. Oh, or just buy the book. There we go. Buy the book. <laughs> well done. Well done in true capitalist fashion. Bravo, bravo. Come, coming out uh, May 19th, it's called uh, right. Strange Rights, um, New, New Religions for a Godless World, right? It's, yes, it's really brilliant, it. really entertaining, really educational. Uh, highly recommend. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.